black people, when you go south, um, not ur- people in urban centers, black Americans in the southern areas, especially black immigrants from Caribbean islands, when you really classify them, they're fiscally conservative and more socially liberal. But when you start getting into controversial topics like same-sex marriage, you'll see a lot of overlap between white conservatives and black immigrants or black first-generation immigrants and Southern black Americans. And I think people use the black perspective from urban centers, that super liberal, like New York, California perspective, and they try to paint that brush as that's the black and Hispanic population as, as a whole. And when you get into the Hispanic population, I was just black people. There's even way more divergence because you got a lot of white passing Hispanics that like to accept the benefits of their white passingness, but they'll also take the minority benefits at the same time, too. School is in session, fam. I am Donovan. Welcome to a special episode of Stranger Fruit. We are kicking off Summer School, our audio-only summertime series, where we explore the last year across a few topics that we believe, as black and brown folks, it is important that we are well-versed in. Where were we a year ago, and where are we now? We have some really dope guests joining us for this series, so let's get started with Chapter 1, Politics 101. If you don't already know, Stranger Fruit is a -a one-of-a-kind video podcast experience where you get to be a fly on the wall as some of the most brilliant young voices from the black and brown diaspora bring you unfiltered, thought-provoking conversations. We discuss and debate an array of fascinating topics from sex and politics to religion and sports. Now, we may not always agree, but we are firm believers that conflict and compassion are a great recipe for empathy. So, as many of us know, politics is a hot mess. We have a two-party system that positions itself as the most efficient way to deliver fairness, yet it continuously undermines the progress of black and brown people, as well as queer and poor folks. Those of us with intersecting identities know exactly what it's like to feel especially targeted by our political system. Now, I believe we are at a pivotal moment, a crossroads, where we have some important decisions to make as a community on how we can get on the same page because no matter what tactics we use, we need some unity and coalition to get there. Y'all remember when George Floyd was brutally murdered by that pig, Derek Chauvin, who used his position as a police officer to uphold his ancestors' racist legacy? Y'all remember him? Yeah, the world came together in a way that we have never seen in our lifetimes to say no to the injustice. However, That was a very special moment where everyone was feeling the breath of death. The pandemic was terrifying. We were in some Netflix dystopian movie nightmare. But I must admit, it was nice to see that unity. It was encouraging. Unfortunately, it also proved to be very fleeting because just like that, we are trying to get back to business as usual. And look, within the last year, we've seen the rolling back of women's rights, queer rights, and the banning of Black-focused curriculum and books. How is this possible considering all that we have been through and all of the alleged power of the vote? And I know what you're thinking. This started way before the pandemic with that dusty Dorito of a president. And while that is true, yes, why is it so hard for us to stay on the same page? Why don't we have the stamina to resist? In this chapter, we get into what is keeping black and brown people from being a solid voting bloc. Why are Republicans winning over some people of color? 
So shout out to Paige Fernandez, advocate and organizer in Philadelphia. Sylvester Annie Jr., the founder of The Love We Don't See and ex-California congressional candidate. Dr. Angel Jones, professor and critical race scholar. And Carl, financial expert, options gang founder, and Grapevine TV vet for joining me for chapter one. Now let's kick it off with Dr. Jones getting into why we see a growing number of politicians of color repping the GOP. Dr. Angel Jones, I'm gonna start with you, okay? And I wanna just start at the basics to set the foundation for the show. In your opinion, how do we make sense of the growing number of GOP politicians of color? Let's start there. Oh, so you want to come in hot. I see you. You know what I'm saying? Why not? Why not? <laughs> we got to. We got to. I think it's an interesting question because I feel like we're trying to make sense of something that don't make no sense, um, but then also mm-hmm. makes sense at the same time, right? I think folks often do what they believe is in their best interests, um, even though it's not. And I feel like the GOP has made it very clear that they are not about us or for us. Um, but I think a lot of people that... Um, I would say want to be part of the majority or want to be seen a certain way or accepted by white folks specifically or folks of color that subscribe to white supremacist ideologies think that if they join the GOP that they also get to join that same class or that same um, group of folks not knowing that they're not checking for them, right? I feel like those folks are really just laughing at them behind their backs. Um, but they really feel like they're part of them when they really aren't. Mm. Carl, I'd love to hear your response to that because we're approaching another very, very critical election cycle, right? It's about to be intense in this country. I'm telling you right now. Carl, I don't know if you identify as a Republican, but I know that you have very, very conservative perspective. And I know that you're no fan of the Democratic Party. So what Dr. Jones just said in reference to people caping on the Republican side in hopes of like getting some credibility from wannabe peers or whatever, do you feel it's the same way or do you think that there's another reason why there's this growing number of GOP politicians of color? Well, um, there's a partial truth to what she's talking about. So what you got to understand, so like myself, I don't consider myself a Republican. I don't subscribe to any particular party in particular, but if I had to say I would be more libertarian than Republican. But what happens is a lot of libertarian candidates, because of the two-party system, usually have to run under the Republican banner. So that's why, for the most part, libertarianism is often confused with conservatism. The, The truth of the matter is most people in America aren't left and aren't right. They're somewhere in the middle. And especially when you want to talk about black people, black people are not a monolith. So the population that she's describing is a very real population. I wouldn't say that is the majority of people of color in the Republican Party are uh, making movements in the Republican Party. You have a segment that is legitimately looking at this as either financial jokes or political jokes. Either way, There's an easier path for black people to make money and or make movements politically if they are going through the Republican track because Republicans are providing the opening for that to occur. So you have that segment of the population that's doing it a lot more calculated. Got you. And then you also have a segment of the population, which I would more refer to black people not being a monolith, is that. Going back to it, most people aren't right or left. Most people are somewhere in the middle. And when, especially when you consider like black people, when you go south 
um, not ur- people in urban centers, Black Americans in the southern areas, especially Black immigrants from Caribbean islands, when you really classify them, they're fiscally conservative and more socially liberal. But when you start getting into controversial topics like same-sex marriage, you'll see a lot of overlap between white conservatives and Black immigrants or Black first-generation immigrants and Southern Black Americans. And I think people use the Black perspective from urban centers that super liberal, like New York, California perspective, and they try to paint that brush as that's the Black and Hispanic population as a whole. And when you get into the Hispanic population, I was just Black people, there's even way more divergence because you got a lot of white passing Hispanics that like to accept the benefits of their white passingness, but they'll also take the minority benefits at the same time too. So you know, it's complicated. And that's why I don't even like using the word people of color, because then I have to start identifying the different areas within the different racial groups, because there's different motivations amongst the different racial groups. But if you want to isolate it towards a black thing, even within the black community, it's not that single monolithic New York, California, super liberal perspective. And that's the country in a whole. It's not just black people. Most people aren't extreme left and extreme right. And one of the things that happened as like a byproduct of what Donald Trump became is that people have become so polarized. So it's like you have to go to one side and you have to accept every single one of these point of views on this huge entire list. And most people aren't really like that. Like you'll find people that are pro-choice but don't believe in same-sex marriage but are also fiscally conservative, but don't believe in the death penalty. Like that's a population of people. And most people in America are some mixture of all of those positions. But right now the country has become so polarized and it's like, once you're on one side or the other, you have to accept this whole blanket list of ideologies on every single topic across the sun. Now, We must admit, to Carl's point, many people think that Black folks are out here excited about gay marriage and abortion rights, but that is the furthest thing from the truth. There are plenty of Black people that are conservative, okay? The elephant in the room is that many Black people will not vote Republican even though they are conservative because the GOP gives racism, okay? It gives Jim Crow. It gives evil villain, and Black people do not want to be a part of that. We know how traumatic the systemic violence of white supremacy is. Now, Carl's point on the Latino community is also interesting, right? I have had so many questions on why Latinos vote Republican, especially when the candidate spews anti-Latino rhetoric. Now, Paige joins in to let us know if she is concerned about Latinos turning to the GOP, and Sylvester tells us what he has learned from running in an election. I think from where I am on the ground that overwhelmingly what I'm seeing is less people flipping, but more anecdotally what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing on the ground is just more people not wanting to engage with either party not wanting to vote, period, full stop, because neither party is providing them with a home or with what a lot of people of color are demanding. I think specifically when we talk about Black voters, and I'm sure Dr. Jones could like elaborate on this. I'm not a voting or electoral expert, but 
like the political theory behind what has happened to the Black vote in the Black electorate in the U.S. has to come down to them being electorally captured. Um, So where neither party is trying to gain their vote or appeal to them because it would be seen as divisive by white America, which is the base of both parties, um, and because their vote has been so consistent for one party. And so they're ignored by the Republican Party, taken for granted by the Democratic Party. And so I really see, you know, obviously we know through polls that there is a shift in people of color, specifically Black people in the past few months, kind of disapproving of the Democratic Party, of Joe Biden, moving towards the Republicans. And I think that's really an indictment of our two-party system, the fact that there are such limited options and people are really weighing, you know, what is the lesser of two evils here? Yeah. And you know that that's so funny because this is like a flashback. Carl was there during this flashback, but I remember when Trump was running initially. So this is like 16 months before 2016, right? And we're having conversations about what's going to happen. What's the worst thing that can happen if Trump were to get elected? And a lot of people are like, it's not going to happen. It's too extreme. People won't go for it. And I think like there's this energy of like disillusion that a lot of Democrats um, have where there's this expectation that everybody's just going to fall in line. Obviously, Donald Trump and people who are like him are villains in a movie, right? But they actually inspire a lot of people to go out to the polls. And I think a lot of people have it fucked up about what Black people and Latin Americans specifically who come to this country, whether they were born here or not. Same thing that Carl was mentioning with um, Caribbean people who like even come to this country for better opportunities is that we're able to make decisions now and see things a little bit more clearly. We have different expectations. And I'll say even for myself, I'm registered as a Democrat, right? But that's only because of motherfucker that just hasn't gone yet and changed that to be independent because I personally don't identify with the Republican or the Democratic Party. But Paige, I just want to follow up on you. One of the criticisms that I have about like observing people who are non-Black gravitate towards the Republican Party is that I think a lot of it is rooted in anti-Blackness. I think a lot of it is rooted in aspiring to whiteness. Do you find that to be true in being on the ground and seeing when people, especially who are not Black, decide to become Republicans or try to assimilate? Do you think any of it is anti-Blackness? And I'll throw that to anyone on the panel as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think our entire political system is rooted in anti-Blackness. And I think our voting trends and electorate trends can be tied directly to the history of racial justice in this country. And I think um, there's like often a conflation in this country of what is seen as popular, um, what Democrats and Republicans, the values that they try to espouse, um, you know, it's kind of coded as like this everyday Americans love this and this is popular. But really what that means is it's white. And I think that appeals to a lot of other people of color who are non-Black, who might feel threatened by the changing of the status quo or the racial hierarchy. Because as Carl said, you know, there are people who benefit, including myself, like, from light skin privilege and people who benefit from white supremacy, even if they don't identify as white. And I think, you know, that's definitely a concern and definitely something we need to keep our eyes on. Real quick, just to add to that, you also even have darker skinned people who are black, like Ali Alexander, who don't identify as black, you know, so whether they are Arabic or Indian populations and they don't recognize the blackness or the melanin in their skin, 
they still stand to benefit from aligning with these right-wing parties. So this is why, like, even the POC terminology is so problematic because when you separate, you really have to separate the groups by race because every single racial group has a different percentage of their own separate agendas. And, you know, the Black people that are doing a thing for the Republican Party is a different pie versus the Hispanic ones versus guys like Ali Alexander and even versus, like, Asian guys like that and Andy and Gold Dude or whatever, you know, each racial group has their own motivations behind it. Like, for example, Indians and Asians don't have to um, explain anything. You know, Hispanics are more kind of what you say caught in the middle. But again, white passing Hispanics will still claim their benefits. And dark, dark skinned Hispanics can't really, can't really, like, game. Even going back to it, when you talk about these issues, you really cannot use POC because that just opens a Pandora box because every race has a different agenda. Great uh, point. Can I Great jump point, in Rob. here? Oh, yes, please. Go ahead, Dr. Jones. Um, so I was just responding to your question about anti-Blackness. Well, first of all, I feel like anti-Blackness is all up and through everything in this country. Uh, but I feel like in terms of what we're talking about, I feel like it's not just anti-Blackness. I feel like we always have to be thinking about intersectionality and how that's showing up. And I'm going to speak about Black folks specifically. Like, sometimes they're love of being Black is trumped by their hatred of other groups, right? So I feel like they're not always mm-hmm. voting because what they believe is in the best interest of their racial group. Make, maybe it's because they're transphobic or homophobic or all these other things that um, the GOP tends to also be. Um, so I don't necessarily feel like them joining the GOP is because of anti-Blackness, although there are those that do. I do believe it's also rooted in other forms of bigotry. Yeah, Ooh, that's, that's a really, really great really point. Good. Um, thank you. Thank yeah, you for that. I, I definitely want to throw Sylvester in here. Sylvester and I both live in Los Angeles, which is a heavily Black and Latin community. And you and I, Sylvester, have had a lot of conversations around politics and people of color and the vote and all of that. And we saw in the Netflix special, Knock Down the House, how difficult it was for AOC to win her election. And yet a lot of people say that we just need more people of color as candidates to run for office. So Sylvester, as somebody who has tried in California and experienced how difficult and expensive it is and an uphill battle, like, do you think it's possible to get a lot more people of color in as candidates or is it just too much of an uphill battle for us? Mm, Yes. What's the tea? Great question. What is the tea? <laughs> the interesting thing is that with my campaign, I, I'd even say that the campaign radicalized my political ideology even more. Just seeing the, you know, just a peek at the inside of the belly of the beast and the belief that I had at, you know, coming into it, feeling like there was an avenue and a platform for a message and that some type of, you know, radical systemic change could be done using that platform in the correct way, you know, at the end of it, I started feeling what Dr. King said in terms of you're trying to integrate people into a burning building and the types of solutions that we're looking for in terms of liberation for our community, I don't believe are going to come through that avenue. And I don't think it's about getting more people of color in those positions, I feel like we need to start talking more about the power dynamics between the electorate and the proletariat, the people, 
and those in government, because right now the power dynamic is that we have to, you know, beg the people in charge, the 400 some odd members of the House and Senate, et cetera, for the things that we need to live sustainable, healthy lives. We have to beg. But there's more of us than there are them. And I feel like the power dynamic is off. And I feel like we need to start shifting towards more organizing. I think we've seen a lot of mobilizing over the last couple of years since the George Floyd uprisings, but more organizing to collectively build the type of power that we would need to put pressure on them to meet our demands and to actually fear the proletariat versus them feeling like they can just be so blatantly disrespectful and corrupt in our faces, knowing that there isn't any backlash coming back, knowing that there's a 90 percent odd chance that they're going to get reelected and not face any repercussions for going on an agenda that's against the people. Right. Thank you for that, Sylvester. I think that's interesting because I have never run for office. I know nothing about this at all. But a lot Donovan of people, for president in 2020. Um, let me tell you something. I would never, you couldn't even pay me enough money to be involved in the shenanigans. So Sylvester, I, I throw my hat off to you for doing that. But when I look at the landscape, what Carl was saying makes sense to me, right? You know, as a person of color and they're trying to run as a Republican, there may be some support behind that because ultimately Republicans understand strategy. They understand about wanting to get people to come under their tent. They all fall in line way better, in my opinion, than Democrats do. Carl, how do you feel about it? I know you wanted to jump in before. How do you feel about this idea of people of color getting more into politics? So again, it depends on the party. So when you look on the Democratic side, you have longstanding traditions. You have white people and families that are entrenched in local and federal politics, you know, that won't move. So black people will never have opportunities in those areas. But there's always opportunities in certain cities, states, jurisdictions that they'll give out black people or people of color, whatever term you want to use, uh, opportunities. What happens in the Republican Party is in a lot of those areas, Republicans have nothing to lose. So they don't mind putting up a minority candidate, especially against territories that have historically run blue. Because, again, those places have usually just relied on minorities voting for Democrats. And what you'll happen, what you'll see is that you'll see a person of color just like in the uh, position of Kayla Flores. But again, I don't even like using the POC terminology, but minority, whatever group you want to classify them as, will run up again a longstanding position that's held by someone white. And then now the people of that area, instead of just automatically voting for Democrat, they vote for people who they actually identify with racially or culturally or ethnically, you know, or even in some jurisdiction sexually. So, again, it's a different dynamic. So there's a lot more opportunity for a person up and coming. So even when you look at someone like Kim Kardashian and you could we could have a whole separate debate on what her motivations were or not. But a oh, lot I of will. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole separate episode. The point I want to extract from that is that that was done because of her relationship with the administration in power. So what happens is a lot of people of color may not have that leverage on that national making news scale, but they will gain that leverage when they win those positions on a local and state level. So they'll do things for their community that will benefit them. So theoretically, you have a lot of black people in a position where if I run as a Republican, I have a better chance of getting more support. And on top of that, I can probably do more for my local community as long as I regurgitate X, Y, and Z token points. 
Yeah, that's a fact. And, I, and to echo Carl's point before you go, Paige, I would say that's what we saw with, what's her name, Myra Flores, if I'm not mistaken. I think she's in Texas. Yeah, she's in South Texas. Yep. She's in South Texas, yes. And she's even used the border issue as a campaigning initiative as well. And that's the gotcha gotcha. I think a lot of people, and I will say as a Black person who's not a part of the Latin community, is that looking from the outside in, I'm like, oh shit, like these um, conversations about border safety and immigration for Latin voters is going to be like a priority. They're going to want to make sure that they're treated properly. They're not going to want to go with all of this bullshit that a lot of Republicans are talking about. But in Myra's example, she's using it. I think one of her quotes, let me see if I can find it. I think it was a quote where she's basically saying, we can't visit our family in Mexico because we're scared. It's dangerous, right? And we don't want those same people to come into this country. So she's for good, strict border control, right? But Donovan, I don't mean to cut you off, but this is what I'm saying. Before Carl cuts me off, let me give you some facts. Latinos are the largest ethnic minority voting group in the United States. In 2021, data showed 26% of Latinos identified as Republican or as leaning toward the GOP. The highest percentage of those are Cuban. A 2018 survey similarly showed that voters of Puerto Rican and or Mexican descent were more likely to identify as Democrats or lean toward the Democratic Party. In 2020, 58% of Cubans identified as Republican. And as I'll mention later, in the 2020 election, 70.9% of white voters casted ballots compared with only 58.4% of non-white voters. That's the T, just the facts. Let's get back to the conversation. What you have to understand is a lot of the whites passing Hispanics in that area, even if you look at white passing Hispanics in um, in Florida, a lot of, of Cuban descent, they share those actual I- ideologies as the white conservatives. So for a lot of those people, it's not even actually a talking point. They believe that and their family actually literally believes that because those policies will often hurt darker skin passing Hispanics more than yeah. their actual community. Yeah, I I actually had no idea. When I was doing the research, I was kind of like shocked by that. So I think that's something that a lot of people who are outside of the community are looking at and like, wow, like this is going to be potentially really good for Republicans. Because if there are going to be people who identify as Hispanic or Mexican, Latino, who are going to say, listen, we're for these same policies like immigration control, like border control, vote for me. Right. And to that point of people looking at these candidates like, oh, they look like me. Let me vote for them. What can we lose? Democrats ain't doing shit for me anyway. Right. Like it's su- it's something that I know is going to work in their favor. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea that was a thing. Paige, feel free to jump in on that point. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, I had two quick thoughts that I just wanted to get out there. My first thought is that I just don't think electing more people of color, more minorities into office is like inherently a good thing. I think I have like the same like visceral reaction I have to when people say that like, oh, you know, hiring more cops of color is going to end police violence, right? Like I do not think yes, in like inherently electing more people of color to these institutions that are already incredibly problematic is going to save us. But I do think that there is a question of like, what level of government are we asking people to run for? Because I think that really does matter, right? In my personal opinion, I've lost a lot of faith in our federal government. And so what does it look like to ask people to run for state office and local office, um, like really grassroots offices, like school boards? And I think it can really make a difference in those places. 
Got you. Thank you for yes. that. Please. No, absolutely. And y'all mentioned Mayra Flores a, a couple times. Another thing that um, she said after winning her seat was um, that they, meaning Democrats, feel entitled to our vote, her, the Latino vote, making the same promises over and over and really not making anything happen. And I think that is probably one of the reasons, if I can bring in some statistics, as to why actually a lot of people in 2020 didn't vote. And in particularly, people of color did not vote as nearly as high as they did um, in previous elections. And some of the stats that I personally found was this. In 2021, data showed 26% of Latinos identified as Republican or as leaning toward the GOP. But the highest percentage of those are Cuban. And a 2018 survey similarly showed that voters of Puerto Rican or Mexican descent were much more likely to identify as Democrat or lean towards the Democratic Party. But in 2020, 58% of Cubans identified as Republican. Mm. Now, one of the things that is like really striking to me here is that when you start to look at race and ethnicity, right? So Latinos, again, just like Black folks, are not a monolith. We come from multiple different countries, including the Caribbean. And once you start to kind of divide race and ethnicity, I think Cubans are very unique in the fact that the Cubans who are in the United States are predominantly white or white presenting. And so I would love to ask uh, Dr. Angel Jones, how do you feel about kind of breaking things down by ethnicity as it relates to the Latin vote? Because it seems like when you start to separate all the different, you know, countries, most of the time it's white Latinos that come from dictatorships that are mostly leaning Republican. What do you think about that? Um, when Great you question. say Cuban, that wasn't surprised at all. I was like, yeah, this one's right. Right. Uh, yeah, like I would be more surprised if you said anybody else but that. Um, but no, I think what you were saying earlier is true. I feel like when we don't disaggregate the data by race, I think it gives a false picture of what's actually going on. Um, I, I mentioned anti-Blackness earlier. Anti-Blackness is all up and through the Latinx community. So when I think about the Latinos that tend to vote with re Republican, most of them are white Latinos as issue with the white passing versus being white, but that's a different episode for a different day. Um, we'll break that down another time. <laughs> I'm just saying, but I, I feel like most Afro-Latinos and Black identifying Latinos aren't joining the GOP at the same rate as white Latinos are. And then just to, just to follow up with that, and I'd love to hear from Paige and Sylvester as well on this, but isn't this a little bit of like... Stockholm syndrome or just like a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because my thing is that, like, you coming from a country, yes, with a dictator, it's like, yo, I don't want to see that shit. Don't talk to me about no socialism. I'm not doing any of that. I just left that. But then you wind up voting for somebody who ultimately wants to be a dictator. <laughs> like, I don't get exactly. it. Exactly. Like, he's ultimately a raging lunatic, megalomaniac, who wants everyone to do what he says. I think this is one of those things where we see it in just like regular human behavior, where we say we don't want something, right? And as Black people have done, as we have seen poor whites in this country do, we often vote against our own best interest. And I think that this is one of those special examples where, yeah, you might be white passing. You know, people may not know. You may think that you're an exception to the other more dark, other brown, curly haired 
Latinos, but you're ultimately voting for someone who wouldn't mind being a dictator of the country. I think that is very, very ironic. Paige, what do you think about that? Do you think, like, what's the psychology yeah. behind that? I'm still trying to figure that out. As someone who's not in the community, like, I'm looking at this like, is there therapy for all? What's going on? <laughs> okay, so I have, like, kind of two thoughts on this. I think the first one, and one that I feel, like, very passionately about and probably will bring up, more in this conversation is that, like, the right Republicans, conservatives in general, are just winning the rhetoric, uh, culture, and language war right now. They are demolishing the left with the narratives that they're putting out there. Um, and I think it's really easy for people to get swept up in those narratives and the language that appeals to them. And that resonates with them. And the Democratic Party didn't even have a plan. They had like six weeks notice that Roe v. was going to get overturned. They didn't even have like a talking points or messaging document prepared for that. I think the other part of it is that like these systems and our political institutions are purposely complicated. And I think that means that oftentimes people will vote against their own self-interest. I think elected officials and politicians, people running for office will manipulate and lie, will say that XYZ policy will benefit your community, will benefit you, knowing that is fully untrue. But also, I mean, just like our entire political system is so complex. And I think it makes it really challenging for people to figure out what is in their best interest and who is actually genuinely looking out for them. Thank you for that. Great, great, great note. So, Carl, I have a question for you. So there's a woman that is named uh, Karen Walker, and she said if the uh, or sorry, she before I say what she said, she's the president of Black Conservatives for Truth. So she is a Republican. So what she said is, if the only reason that you're a Democrat is because you think Republicans are racist, then you need to go back and figure out why you're really a Democrat. Racism does not discriminate by party. And you see that playing out right now in the Democratic primaries with misstep after misstep. What do you think about somebody like Karen Walker, who feels very strongly about her conservative values? but is trying to tell Democrats like, hey, you need to critique your own party as well or come to our side. What do you think? I'm not going to speak directly on her as a person because honestly, I'm not really familiar with her. So, you know, I wouldn't come out, jump out the building and just start talking about someone that I have no nothing about based on one quote that I heard from you. What I will say is that there's a lot of truth in what she's saying and what I think most Americans, especially people who aren't in media or are on the news, and when I say media, I even include like platforms like this and, you know, YouTube creators and podcasts is that most Americans aren't extremists on either end. So, again, some a lot of people see that, yo, there is nothing that the Democrats are offering me. Biden campaigned on all this black stuff. The first thing he does is make an Asian hate crime bill. Black people don't have even anything close to that. But again, so it's like there's black people that just are completely disillusioned with what you're talking about. And there's people right now of every race right now that were making a lot more money. Their 401ks were looking a lot better when Trump was in office than when Biden is in an office. And you split those people to people who are admitting that this whole lesser of two and evil narratives doesn't really make sense, especially when you want to look at the data, when you want to look at military interventions. Trump had ceasefires with, again, terrorist organizations that were 
when he was handed the presidency, ISIS was the biggest thing around the world. That nigga sent a bunch of drones, no troops. They disappeared, essentially. And we went from a period where there was no military conflicts. As much as even the news media was trying to hype the North Korea thing, they were saying, oh, it's going to be World War III. But now we have the beginning of World War III actually now happening in Ukraine with Biden under control, especially when you're given long-range missiles that can go into Russian territory and $54 billion to Ukrainian citizens. What type of commitment has he made on anything even close to that level to the Black community? Like, so Black people have one, it's one or two options Black people can make. Isn't either Black people all collectively say, fuck it, we're not going to let these Democrats bake on our vote and we're going to vote another way? Are we going to say, fuck it, we're not going to let Democrats bank on our vote and not vote at all? A good amount of the population does not even vote. That's why a lot of votes are even tilted by which percentage of the population that doesn't vote even actually comes out to the polls. But in general, it's around half the population in America that never even votes in any of these presidential elections. And the numbers will vary depending on which election it is around that 50 percent marker. Yeah. And one of the stats that we have here says that in 2020, in the election, 70.9 of white voters casted ballots compared with only 58.4%. And again, those variances is what leads to the tilts in different elections. And but the problem is, is that black people just continually follow this narrative. So you got a section of black people, whether they're doing it for benevolent or malicious intentions or seeing opportunities on the Republican side. Being that we're a country with a two-party system, so a third party doesn't really have a palpable opportunity. But ideally, what black people should do is create their own separate third party. But that's a whole discussion for a whole nother day. Indeed, Carl. The conversation is just getting good, right, y'all? Well, don't worry. We have got you covered for five more weeks. Leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed this episode and be sure to join us next week for the rest of our summer school series right here on Stranger Fruit. Until next time, be kind, be curious, and be fruitful. Peace.